All right, well, Shabbat Shalom. It's great to, uh, to be here with you. Uh, as was just said, my name is Michael Gabizon. I was uh, born and raised up in Montreal, uh, in uh, Quebec. Has anyone ever been to Montreal? Oh, oh wow, okay. Well, I guess it's not that cool then. Uh, from Montreal, I'm from a Messianic Jewish household. Uh, both my parents are Jewish followers uh, in the Messiah. They both follow the, the, uh, the Messiah, and they have a congregation there. Uh, my father is uh, from Morocco. Uh, originally, and my mother, uh, her lineage comes from Poland, so the running joke was that we as kids should be called Marco Polo. <laughs> so that helps you remember it. Um, I, I am doing my, my PhD at McMaster University, as was said, uh, for children from intermarried couples in the Hebrew Bible and Second Temple period. And the reason that it's important is because you have this very interesting narrative in Ezra where the community comes back to the land and then Ezra, they see the children from intermarried couples and they tell them to leave the community. Whereas you have many other cases where intermarried couple, uh, children from intermarried couples were allowed into the community. So my interest is kind of figuring out why do you have that difference and then how that kind of impacts us today. Uh, I live in Montreal right now with my wife, Hannah, and my three boys, a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a two-year-old. So your prayers are welcome <laughs> as we attempt to survive. This is my first time at Beth uh, Messiah Congregation, uh, but I have been around uh, in Chicago. I was there for a couple of years in the Messianic Hub and then in Dallas, uh, Texas for a couple of years. And I've always heard very, very good things about the congregation. So I'm, I'm very happy to be here uh, with you and to spend the weekend together. Uh, so over this weekend, uh, we're going to look at what I consider to be one of the most important topics in biblical studies in the Hebrew Bible, which is the study of covenants. The reason that this is so important, not only does it kind of tie together the entire scriptures, not only does it kind of piece together everything that's happening in terms of understanding language and things of that sort, but it also reveals important notions about the character of God. It reveals the faithfulness of God, that despite the fact that Israel may sin or that they may break the covenant, that God does not just throw them away. Instead, he's extremely faithful to them. And so this characteristic of both God's faithfulness, his chesed, his loving kindness with covenants is closely tied together in Scripture. I bring up uh, this verse here, 1 Kings 8.23. If you remember when Solomon, he was dedicating the temple and then he, he uh, pronounces this prayer and it says, Solomon said, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on the earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing loving kindness. If you could see that. Now in Hebrew, the word showing is actually not there. It's literally keeping covenant and loving kindness. That's how closely they are tied together. So the first benefit of understanding the covenants is understanding the character of God. And my biggest prayer is that if we could leave here at the end of the weekend, appreciating God's faithfulness more and then emanating it to each other, then that's the goal accomplished. The second thing uh, for the importance of covenants is being able to contribute to conversations today. Whether you're in the Christian world or whether you're in the Messianic Jewish world, there's a bunch of debate about Jewish identity, about the land of Israel today, about whether the church is the new Israel, which is, you know, replacement theology or supersessionism, which is another term for it. And whenever you speak to people that you may disagree with, what it really comes down to is your understanding of covenants. Are all the covenants still intact? Have some replaced others? Are others more important? That's what we're going to discuss in our time now. 
Unfortunately, supersessionism is sort of a uh, replacement theology. It's sort of a default position uh, in many churches. And so being aware of the issues and being able to speak about them and to show the importance of covenants uh, is a great asset. I remember when I was living in, in Dallas, um, I spoke in Markham, Texas, which um, when I visited there, the Jewish population went to one person because <laughs> I was there, right? So there, there's not really any Jewish uh, community there or anything, but I was speaking in a church about Romans 9 through 11, which is where Paul speaks about you know who Israel was and who they are today and what's going to happen. And a gentleman came up to me right before I got up and he said, oh good, you're speaking on Romans 9, you're going to talk about the true Israel of God, the church. And I was like, man, I am so happy that you came and told me this, that, that this is what you believe. Because now what I focused on ma- uh, mainly in the, in the speech was the faithfulness of God to the Abrahamic covenant. Because uh, in Romans 9, 6, there's a passage that's often translated, they are not all Israel who are true Israel. Literally in Greek, it's they are not all Israel who are out of Israel. It's talking about the remnant, not as though the church is the new Israel. So there are many benefits to understanding covenants, and so we're going to uh, explore that together uh, over this weekend. Now, just some preliminary points. First, I presume many of us here have heard the expression, do we have two Jews? Okay, yeah, okay, good. Three opinions, right? Uh, especially if you're at a Sephardic Shabbat dinner, you're going to witness that. Um, there are times where we're probably going to disagree on certain translations or certain theological tenets, and that is completely fine. Um, I look forward to hearing questions and pushback and iron, iron interpreting iron kind of thing going on. So don't ever hesitate to, uh, to bring your questions or concerns up after. The second thing is that we're going to have to be selective about what covenants we actually delve into, and then also how deep we're able to go into them just because of time. So if you know about God's covenant with Noah, for example, what's often called the Noahic covenant, we're not really going to be touching on that uh, in our time, unfortunately. We'll, we'll speak a little bit here, like a footnote or something, but nothing too extensive. So we will be more uh, selective, but again, the main point is to build a strong base to have a strong appreciation for the covenants, and then to uh, continue our study onward. Now, this was just uh, given to you, and that's wonderful, the kind of a a roadmap of what's going to happen this weekend. I'm just going to bust right through this because I wasn't sure if that was going to be presented. Here we're going to talk about the the Abrahamic covenant, and my main argument here is that the Abrahamic covenant is the the backbone. It's the spine to the Hebrew Bible because all the other covenants grow off out of that one. So the Abrahamic covenant, it's a central covenant. Tomorrow, we're actually going to go back in time. We're going to look at Genesis 1 through 3 at the Adamic covenant, the covenant made with Adam essentially prior to them being kicked out of the Garden of Eden. We're going to see how this affects us today and also a focus on the Messiah, that the promise of a Messiah, I believe, was embedded right from the very beginning. Then on Saturday uh, afternoon, we're going to deal with the covenant on Sinai. For, we're going to deal with the Torah. Now, if you're involved in the Messianic movement, you probably know this is a hot topic, which I thought would be great for kind of a roundtable discussion about the function of Torah and how to interpret Torah and um, yeah, how, how to uh, how to. how we could speak about Torah as being practical in our lives today. So that's what we're going to go over then. Saturday, we're going to speak about the Davidic covenant. This is in 2 Samuel, when God made a covenant with David. Now, this is really important because when you get to the New Testament and you start hearing language about Son of God, that Yeshua is a Son of God, you know, like my my family on my mother's side, they're um, Chabadniks, meaning 
they are, uh, they adhere to, they think Schneerson is the Messiah, they're Chabadniks, uh, they're religious Jews, and the idea that you believe that God has a son is just blasphemous, it's, it's Greek mythology, but what does the term son of God actually mean? It comes from this Davidic covenant. It's not a matter of biology, it's a matter of position, it's kingship. So understanding the notion of, uh, of the Davidic covenant is very important. And then finally, in the New Covenant, uh, on Sunday morning, we're going to talk about whether we're living in the New Covenant and then what it should be like. Of course, if you tell any of your Jewish friends or family that we live in the New Covenant, they're probably going to tell you, look out the window, go open up your newspaper, right? We're not living in the New Covenant. So what, is, what does that mean? How do we rectify Yeshua instituting it at the Last Supper or at the Passover Seder and then where we live today? So... Again, my prayer is that we'll be spiritually enriched, both mentally and, uh, well, spiritually and mentally, as we go through this, and our appetite for the word will be wet. Any questions? Probably not. Crystal clear so far, right? Okay, good. So, first question, what is a covenant? This is a simple question, and I'll give a simple answer here. It's essentially an agreement between two parties. It's an agreement between party A and party B. Now, the complex um, answer to that is that within each covenant, you not only have an agreement, you also have stipulations. So you have some laws like you need to do this and you cannot do that. And then you have consequences for them. So if you break the covenant or if you break these laws, there will be consequences for you. That's usually how the covenants in scripture work. And when you're actually reading scripture, there are a bunch of different types. If you remember, there's covenants between people like Laban and Jacob, for example. They made a covenant together. Jonathan and David made a covenant together. There's also covenants between nations. Uh, Israel and the Gibeonites made a covenant together. Even though it was under false pretenses, it still uh, was held. We're going to look at covenants between God and mankind both God and the entire world, as well as God with the Jewish people specifically. And depending on how you read them, whether you think some are renewals or brand new ones, there's usually six to seven that people count uh, in the Hebrew Bible for covenants. Now, when you look at the type of uh, covenants that you have with God and mankind, there are usually two types, okay? The first is the suzerain-vassal treaty. Does that term sound familiar to anyone? Okay, good. Some nodding heads. Um, the, the, the terminology we get from this, you know, when you read the Hebrew Bible and you read some details, and then you look at other contracts, like from the Hittites or the Assyrians, you see a lot of similarities. So that's how we're able to know how these contracts were actually functioning. Now, in the suzerain vassal treaty, generally what would happen is that, let's say I'm a suzerain, I am a dominant king. I am a dominant king of a dominant empire. And then a vassal is a much kind of smaller king right? He doesn't have the same resources, but he's under attack or something's going wrong. So he'll come to the, the suzerain and say, I need protection. Suzerain will say, sure, I'm going to protect you. And in return, you need to pay me 5% of produce or you need to do something along those lines. Um, here's, here's the key distinction though, or here's the key characteristic of a suzerain-vassal treaty. If the vassal disobeys, if he breaks it, if he doesn't want to pay anymore, then the covenant is broken. And so we see this in contracts when you're looking at the, in the Hebrew Bible, you'll see contracts in, in not in the Hebrew Bible, in, in Hittite literature, contracts where it says that if you do not follow these, then, you know, this God and that God and that God and that God are going to cast judgment on you. Essentially, you're going to be killed for, for breaking it. So that's what we have the first type, the suzerain-vassal treaty. Now, uh, the only biblical covenant that actually reflects the Susan Vassal Treaty 
is the Torah, is the one that we have made on Mount Sinai. Now, does that mean that it's done with? Does that mean that it's conditional and so therefore it's thrown out the window? Stay tuned for tomorrow afternoon because that's where we'll be discussing it. But that's, this is the one type of covenant that we see in the scriptures. The second one is by far much more prevalent and that's what we call a royal grant. The royal grant covenant, in this case, you have the suzerain, he is the dominant king, and you have the vassal, who's a smaller king. And so here, the suzerain will come to the vassal and say, I will protect you. I will go out for war with you. And there are no conditions. This is a royal grant given. Now, there may be, I want you to pay me 5%, and if you don't, then I'm going to take your son or something like that, but the covenant will never be broken, and that's the main distinction between these two. The first one, the covenant could be broken. The second one, the covenant can absolutely never be broken. That is the structure of the royal grant. And you actually see a, an example of this in a, a Hittite text from the 12th century BCE. So this is like around the time that Israel was established with Saul. And this is what it says. It's a contract between um, Hattusilis II and Ulmi Tessup. Uh, if those names mean nothing to you, don't worry, they mean nothing to me also. Uh, but this is what it says. After you, here um, Hattusilis is kind of enthroning Ulmi Tessup. He says, after you, your son and your grandson, they'll possess the land, they'll possess it. Nobody will take it from them. If your descendant sins against the king, then the king will prosecute him at his court. And when he's found guilty, he will die. But here's the key. But nobody will ever take away from the descendants the land, even if you do wrong. And this is the type of covenant you find with the Abrahamic covenant. So that means that the Jewish people could never be done away with based on God's covenant. And that's what we're going to turn to now. So that was some context in terms of the different types of covenants that we see, and we're going to pick up the suzerain vassal tomorrow, but here we're going to see how the royal grant kind of works itself out with Abraham. Now, uh, the Abrahamic covenant, I presume most of us are relatively familiar with it. It runs from Genesis 12 to Genesis 17, kind of like a, a bigger chunk of literature, nothing like the Torah, but bigger chunk of literature. And here, uh, sorry, now, uh, here God calls Abraham, and he calls him out of his land. Now, Abraham hardly needs much of an introduction. Most of us are familiar with who Abraham is, and Abraham is often held up as the pinnacle of faith, right? He's the, the pinnacle kind of believer, right? God calls him out in Genesis 12, and he follows God without knowing all the details. In Genesis 15, he had questions, and God said, I promise I'm going to give this to you. And then it says that he believed unto the Lord, and the Lord credited to him as righteousness, and then you have Genesis 22, the Akedah, right, where he or he almost sacrificed his son Isaac, right? So Abraham is sort of held up as this pinnacle of faith. But the thing I love about Scripture is that it shows us both the ups and the downs of people. And that's what we see with Abraham here. We don't just have a hero with unquestionable faith. Here we have someone who also makes mistakes and who also has struggles and questions, that he was not perfect, he was not flawless. Instead, what you see with Abraham is sometimes he seems to lose interest in God's covenant, or at other times he seems to try to make the covenant come to fulfillment on his own by taking it in his own hands. And yet God continues to bring Abraham back on track, back in line. And so what I love about reading, you know, Abraham's story is on the one hand, God's faithfulness to Abraham, just like his faithfulness to the covenants and his faithfulness to us today, his faithfulness to Abraham on the one hand, but on the other, 
Abraham gives us the key to success in ministry. He gives us the key here to success in our spiritual lives. It is not spiritual perfection or sinlessness, but it's submission to the Lord. Every time God called Abraham back, he went. Every time he told Abraham to correct something, he did. So it's not that he didn't make mistakes, but he submitted himself to the Lord. And that's what we see here. So if you would, turn with me to Genesis 12. As we delve in, uh, this is going to be split up into three sections, Genesis 12, 15, and 17. In Genesis 12, we have God's promise to Abraham. He calls him out, and he gives him really three promises, and these three things, again, are the spine for the rest of the Hebrew Bible. And then in Genesis 15, God actually makes his covenant with Abraham. And this is where you're going to see a tradition of a type of covenant that is made, where they're going to walk through animals. And then finally, in Genesis 17, we have the sign of the covenant. Now, as we approach the text, I'm going to open up to Genesis 12 here. As we approach the text, it's important to remember, at least in my opinion, that everything is written for a reason. Uh, Imagine that every time you wrote an email, one sentence costs a dollar. Or if you post on Facebook, every Facebook post costs 30 cents. Right? We would all become much more intentional and much more careful about what we post and what we write in our emails. Right? We wouldn't be posting pictures of what we ate for breakfast that morning anymore, right? Because nobody cares. It's the exact same thing with the Hebrew Bible. To write costs a lot of money and only a select few can do it. So everything that's in there, the way that they place the narratives together, the details that they give, it's not just someone journaling. It's giving every precise detail in order to tell a story. And so that's what we want to focus on when we come to the text, uh, looking at it as a piece of literature. So we have Genesis 12. Now, just by way of context, Genesis 1 through 11, we essentially have the history of mankind up to Genesis. We have Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. And then we really have two lines that come from Adam and Eve. You have Seth who's the godly line, and you have Cain, the wicked line. And what you realize, and I I would challenge you to, to do it tonight if you haven't done it, go through and actually follow the genealogy of Seth and then that of Cain and see what the author says about these, uh, about the descendants. Usually in the line of Seth, this is where you have Enoch who walked with God, you have Noah who walked with God, Enoch who called on the name of God, and then eventually Abraham. Uh, but then on the other side with Cain, you have people who attempted to usurp the authority of God. You have Nimrod, right, where God said, go out and multiply. Instead, what they did was they built a city. And you have Tubal-Cain, who uh, created violent weapons that that, uh, led to violence. So you have these two different lines going on, which is kind of a a good picture of uh, the spiritual life in terms of two different paths that you could choose. And then this ultimately culminates in the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel is in Genesis 11, and then you have Abraham in Genesis 12. And I think that there's a contrast that's being made between these two. When you get to the Tower of Babel, this is essentially kind of the apex of usurping the authority of God. They weren't interested in God's commands to go out. Instead, they were building a tower, and they give us their main motivation in verse 4. It says, let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the earth, which is essentially what God wanted them to do. So here, their motivation is to make a name for themselves. Now, most of us know the story. God came down. He confused their languages, and essentially, they all dispersed, and they were spread out anyway. You have that in Genesis 11. Then you get to Genesis 12, and what does God say to Abraham? 
He says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great. You see, they were trying to pursue their ends of making their own name great in their own way, trying to usurp the authority of God. God spreads them out. That's not going to work, but he does the same mission and said he is now in charge, and he does it through Abraham. They tried to do it themselves. It's not going to work, but God's going to succeed through Abraham. And so this is the contrast. Those who attempt to usurp the authority of God, he's going to spread out. But with Abraham, he submitted to God, and God's going to do something great with him. So this is the contrast that you have going on with Abraham in Genesis 12. And it's really interesting, you know, if, if you ever read uh, rabbinic literature on why Abraham was selected, right? Like, we, we don't really know. In, in terms of Genesis, it doesn't tell you why he was selected specifically. And so there's all these stories about, you know, he, he was taking care of his father's idol shop because his father was an idolater. And then when his father went out for uh, a little bit, then Abraham smashed all the idols. But then for the biggest one, he put the axe. And his father came back home and was like, what did you do? And he said, I didn't do it. It was the idols. They started to get into an argument with one another, right? To show how silly it is that you pray to these idols. There's all these rabbinic stories about why Abraham was selected. But I think the text tells us right here, it was because he submitted to God. God was going to make his name great because of his submission and his obedience to him. Uh, the notion of walking with God is in, in the scriptures, when it's used metaphorically, it's about a lifestyle. It's about a daily habit of every day, no matter what, no matter the consequences, no matter the circumstances, I'm going to walk with God. I'm going to submit no matter how hard it is. And that's what we see with Abraham. If anyone's familiar with C.S. Lewis, uh, if anyone has ever read The Screwtape Letters, which is a very insightful book, uh, essentially it's, it's about a, a chief demon, Screwtape, writing to a, uh, I think it's his nephew, uh, Wormwood, and he's, he's always kind of first person talking about like how to trip up uh, a believer, a follower of the Messiah. And it talks about submission to God. And he says, do not be deceived, Wormwood. It's the, the uncle demon speaking. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring but intending to do our enemy's will, that's God's will, looks around the universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished, asks why he has been forsaken, and still obeys. Submission to the Lord, whether we agree or not, that's the key. And we see how powerful God used Abraham uh, when he had that characteristic. So we open up in Genesis 12, and right off the bat, we hit the floor running. Uh, Genesis 12, 1, it says, and I'm reading from the NASB, Now the Lord said to Abram, here he calls him first from something. He says, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house. Now notice what he's asking him to do here. He's saying, go from your country. That's your financial security. That's your land. Leave your financial security, leave your family, leave all the, the brothers and the sisters and the descendants that you have, people who will help you with your land, and leave your father's house. Now, Abraham was probably the firstborn, meaning he would inherit from his father's house. He's leaving everything, all financial security behind. When you and I move today, we could bring our bank with us and our finances with us. He's telling Abraham, leave everything, but he gives it all back in a better way. Here we have, leave your land, leave your seed, and leave your blessings. But then he says, go from your country to a land I will show you. Leave your land to a land that I will show you. And then he says, and I will make you a great nation. Leave your relatives, leave your family. I'm going to make you a big family. And he says, leave your father's house 
and I will bless you and make your name great so you will be a blessing to everyone. So in these first four verses, what he does is he calls Abraham out, but he gives everything back to him, except now you could say it's kosher. It's from God. He's the one who's going to be working through Abraham here. When you look at the, uh, at the Hebrew Bible, land, the first thing, land is a very, very important theme. Uh, all the way starting from Abraham uh, with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, where they're in the, the garden and they're able to worship and obey and follow after the Lord. They're kicked out, but they're always looking to get back to that land, to get back to God's sacred spot. When you have this notion of, I'm going to give you relatives, you know, you, you learn about the Lord as you, as you uh, read through these, these covenants and you read through these promises. He tells Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation, right? What happened with Sarah? She was barren. And then what happened with Isaac and his wives? They struggled. And then Jacob, they struggled, right? If God came and, and he promised us something, we usually expect an A to A. I, I promise you this, yes, I'm going to get that. Right? And then if you have to wait maybe a week or so, you're wondering what the delay is, but you know, maybe something got lost in the mail, but it's going to come about. But what you learn about with God's promises is that it's much more zigzagged. It's much more up and down. It's going to come about, but not in the way that you necessarily expect. And so what you can learn from this is that, you know, God is not focused solely on fulfillment. He's also focused on the formation of you and me into the image of his son. Right, So he promises something. It doesn't mean it's going to come about right away. He's also working on us in the midst of that thing coming. And so you see here that he's promised children, but it's actually only 24 years later that he's going to get his son Isaac. And then finally, that he's going to be a blessing to the, uh, to the nations, that the nations will be blessed through him. It says in verse 3, And I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This shows that right from the get-go, God had a plan for the entire world. God had a plan for everybody. That the nations were always included in the Abrahamic covenant in some way. Now, I'm going to do a little spoiler alert here. So you remember I said that the Abrahamic covenant is the backbone, the land, the seed, the blessing, land, descendants, and the blessing to the entire world. Well, the way that people usually compare this to the rest of the covenants in scripture is the promise of land here culminates in the land covenant, which is made in Deuteronomy 28 and 29. And this is where God promises the land to Israel that they may be kicked out because of their disobedience, but they always own it. And then the promise for a seed on the one hand, it's talking about multiple descendants, but tomorrow we're going to talk about how there's actually one descendant in mind as well, and that's through the line of David. So that culminates in the Davidic covenant. And then finally, the notion that all the nations of the earth will be blessed, you see that in the new covenant. So right here in Genesis 12, you kind of have the blueprint for the rest of scripture and what's going to happen with God's covenants. So it looks pretty good. Land seed blessing Abraham is on a mountaintop experience at this point. When you read a couple of verses down, he pitches his tent in the land of Canaan. He went with his wife. He went with his nephew. And it says that he is calling out the name of the Lord, just like Enosh, just like the people who are in that godly line, right? This is a great thing. And then you get to verse 10. What does verse 10 say? Genesis 12, verse 10. Could someone read it for me? Oh. What was it? There's a famine, right? God just promised land, seed, and blessing. You're going to inherit this whole thing. And then there's a famine. 
it's kind of like if you go and buy an iPad and then it doesn't turn on, right? Like there's something defective with this. What do you mean there's a famine? And so here you see this first time that Abraham kind of hits a wall. And this is where his character starts to slip. Instead of crying out to the Lord, instead of wondering what to do, what does he do? He goes to Egypt, which, okay, I mean, it might be practical. Uh, it might be okay at this point. But then what does he do when he's in Egypt? He lies about Sarah, right? He's afraid that Pharaoh's going to take Sarah and kill him. So he tells Sarah, say, I'm your brother, right? Which Sarah definitely is like, what a mensch I have here, right? And then she's taken. So here you have the land promise kind of being compromised a little bit. Now you have the seed promise kind of being compromised where Sarah is now taken. And then what does Pharaoh do? He gives Abraham cattle and he blesses him. Whereas God just said, Abraham, you're going to be a blessing. Now Abraham is being blessed by Pharaoh. So you see how each of these points were challenged right after, right in the next narrative. And you have to be wondering, you know, if you're Abraham and, and Pharaoh just gave you all this stuff and your wife is gone and you're not in your land anymore. And he's probably wondering, how did I end up here? How did I get here? You know, and that's often a question, you know, when you hear about leaders of, of churches or leaders of congregations when they fall, you know, or when they, when they sin, and you can say, what happened? What, what, what transpired that brought you to that point? And I remember reading someone's testimony where uh, this congregational leader was, was in adultery and then, then he stepped down and he said, like, I never pegged myself to be an adulterer. How did I get here? Baby steps. You see, like as believers, we often think, is this right or is it wrong? Is it sinful or is it okay? But a better question to ask in some circumstances is, is it wise or is it unwise? Is this a step I should be taking or not? You see, Abraham, was it good that he left the land? I don't know. Could have been. I probably would have left, you know, uh, if there's a famine. But you see that his heart was not in the right place because he told Sarah to lie. He wasn't trusting in the promise of God. So it's the circumstances that tripped him up here. Um, he was no longer looking at God, but looking at his current situation, and that's what led him to make unwise decisions. And of course, you have the example of, of King David. Uh, King David, a man who wrote the Psalms, a man after God's own heart, and then of course, he murdered Uriah and had adultery, had an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. And you can say, what on earth happened? It actually tells us in 2 Samuel 11, it says, then it happened in the spring at the time when all the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and David stayed in Jerusalem. Now, was it wrong that he stayed in Jerusalem? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know if it was wise because you see what happened. So you see here the difference between sinful, unsinful. I don't know if those are the best questions, but like Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. It's important for us as believers to ask, is this wise? The conversations that we entertain, the TV shows or movies that we watch, is it wise? Not is it wrong, is God going to be angry, but are these the steps I want to be taking? Because Rome didn't fall in a day, you will not fall in a day. But if you take enough steps, that's what will happen. And we see that with Abraham here. Now, thank God. God's graciousness, he sent some plagues and he brought them out. So uh, Abraham was, was saved and the promise was kept. Why? Because it was based on God's covenant. It was based on God's promise. And that brings us to our next section. So in Genesis 12, you have land, seed, and blessing. And then we get to Genesis 15. And this is where God actually makes his covenant. 
This is where God actually works uh, out the ceremony itself in an unconditional nature. Now, if anyone ever tells you that the Jewish people are done away with or that they're not part of God's plans anymore, bring them to Genesis 15. This is the key part where God makes his covenant. And I'm telling you right now, if the Jewish people are done away with, then there's absolutely no basis in your salvation. None. Because what God does right here is he makes the Abrahamic covenant completely contingent on himself. So if he didn't fulfill it, then any other promise is not substantiated. So Genesis 15, uh, to, uh, to just give a bit of context here, Abraham is having some questions, right? And he's kind of asking, how will I know things will come about? How will I know that I'm going to have a seed, a child? How do I know that I'm going to inherit the land? And so then God enacts the covenant in order to give Abraham the confirmation that he needs. Now, the thing is, you know, we, you see a lot of uh, covenants in, uh, in Scripture, like we said, between people or nations, and we don't always understand them. Uh, a covenant of salt, for example, like I said, the covenant between David and uh, Jonathan, uh, a ritual meal. We don't always understand the details of them, but the one here, we know. We know how it was acted out, and we know what it actually means because of other places in Scripture. What you're going to see, and what would happen here is that you would have two people, if we're going to make this type of covenant, two people, and you would take animals and you would cut them in half, which is harsh, but it is what it is, and you would place them on two sides of an aisle. And then both people would walk through the, the animals together. And the idea here is that if one of you breaks the covenant, you're going to end up like those animals. And we see that in Jeremiah 34, 18 through 20 where God says he's angry at the religious leaders in, in Israel because they had a covenant like this and they didn't follow it. He says, I, God, will give the men who have transgressed my covenant when they cut the calf in two and pass between its part, I will give them into the hands of their enemies and into the hands of those who seek their lives. Meaning that they split the animals, they walked through them and they didn't follow through and so therefore you're gonna be killed. And so what you would generally have here is two people walking through, but what do we have? In Genesis 15, it's only the Lord walking through. That means that the Abrahamic covenant completely relies on him. It states, It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch that passed between the pieces. Uh, flaming torch and smoking oven, these terms are never used again for God. So there's a, quite a bit of discussion as to what they actually mean, although we definitely see the Lord emanating himself in fire, whether at Mount Sinai, uh, the burning bush, uh, these different locations that God shows himself in fire. Again, what, what this implies is that it is only up to God, the land, the seed, the blessing. So if anyone ever tells you that the Jewish people are done away with, you want to bring them to Genesis 15. Uh, I work part-time with um, an organization with Ariel Ministries and um, the, the leader of it, the founder of it is Arnold Fruchtenbaum and he often tells a story about when he was giving a lecture many, many years ago and he entitled the lecture, How to Destroy the Jews. Um, I guess it was more politically acceptable back then to do such a thing um, and he said some odd people kind of showed up there to that lecture but the main point of that lecture is you can't. There's absolutely no way the Jewish people are here because those are the ones who God's going to work out his plan through. Another thing is that you don't have any stipulations here. There's no responsibilities. There's no idea of, okay, Abraham, I'm going to walk through, but make sure that you, nothing. 
God gave this royal grand covenant, land, seed, and blessing. And it's important to keep this in mind, especially, you know, we, we said before how supersessionism or replacement theology is kind of a default position uh, in the church. And there are many different forms, many different kind of emanations of replacement theology. For example, you have, and this is by far the most common, what's called punitive supersessionism. And what that means is that because Israel rejected the Messiah, therefore God went to the church. If that's true, then the covenant is broken. Then God is untrustworthy. Another form of supersessionism that you may be familiar with is called economic supersessionism. And this is the idea that everything in with Israel, all the traditions, everything was kind of cute and nice, but it really pointed forward to something that was more substantial and spiritual. So circumcision, for example, really pointed forward to baptism. It really pointed forward to the church. A second century bishop says, the people of Israel was precious before the church arose, and the law was marvelous before the gospel was elucidated. But when the church arose and the gospel took precedence, the model was made void, conceding its power to the reality. The people was made void when the church arose. That's another form of supersessionism that, that people have brought up. However, based on that language, that sounds like God is more kind of like a sleight of hand trick. You know what I mean? Like, hey, I'm going to give this to you. Actually, it means something else. I don't think that's the character that we have with the Lord. So understanding this covenant and understanding the basis of it is means and ammunition in order to fight against these types of views. Uh, okay, so any questions up to this point? Anything that's unclear? Crystal clear? Is everything crystal clear thus far? Okay. All right. We'll keep going. So in Genesis 12, you have the initiation. In Genesis 15, you have the covenant creation. And then now finally, we get to Genesis 17. And this is where we have the sign of the covenant. So if you remember in Genesis 12, God gives him the, God gives Abraham the covenant. And then, you know, right away, you kind of run into a wall right? Where all the promises are kind of jeopardized a little bit, and then God saves him. Same thing with Genesis 15. Genesis 15, God creates the covenant. He, he establishes the covenant through walking through the animals, and then in Genesis 16, you have another, uh, another issue. Now you have Ishmael. Now Ishmael is a descendant of Abraham, right? By all intents and purposes, he should be the one who is inheriting the covenant. So as you're reading this story and you, you kind of know the end results, you're a part of the Israelites, you're reading it, you're kind of going, well, there's something wrong here. And this is the importance of the sign and as well as the, the timing of the sign. Ishmael was technically Abraham's child, although he was not the child of promise. Um, and this is why, especially when you get to Galatians, when you read about the seed of Abraham, you have to keep that in mind that it doesn't refer to Jewish people because Abraham had many children. He had, I believe, eight children. Um, only one of them, the covenant went through. So seed of Abraham means more about his faith, that you are identifying with the faith that he practiced. But that's for another story. Here you have Ishmael, and God says Ishmael is not the, the child of promise. Instead, what's going, who's going to be the child of promise is going to be from Sarai directly, and then he gives the sign. Does anyone know what the sign is? Circumcision, exactly. He gives a sign. Now, the notion that covenants have signs is well established. Uh, for example, with Noah, the sign of the covenant is the uh, the Noahic, uh, is the the rainbow. 
right? So in the same way here, we have a sign for the, uh, for the Abrahamic covenant, which is circumcision. So Genesis 17, it opens up with Abraham. And at this point, he's 99 years old, okay? He was given the promise 24 years earlier that he would have land, seed, and blessing. In 2006, there was a study that was done to show you know, how patient we are or how impatient we are, and it said that on average, and this is 06, on average, men could stand in a line for a total of 15 minutes without getting impatient. Women, 18 minutes, okay? Now, with our phones and how immediate everything is, I'm sure it would be substantially smaller than that, and yet Abraham waited 24 years he waited on the Lord. Again, we like to think that the promises are like A to A, and then you're done. It's a lot of up and down. And so Genesis 17 opens up, and God says to him, walk before me and be blameless, and I will establish my covenant between you and me. Now, of course, at this point, the covenant was already established. It's a matter of confirming it. Uh, and the Hebrew uses the term uh, kum, which is more to confirm it. And then he gives the sign. This is a sign here. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised and every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised through your generations, a servant who is born and the house or uh, who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. Now, there's a lot of conversation about eight days. Was it incumbent upon Jewish people to circumcise their children on the eighth day, or was there variation? Does this just mean eight days old and more? And so if you read in the Mishnah, for example, there's a big conversation about this, the days that it's permissible in order to uh, circumcise your children. Uh, when you look at Second Temple literature, so Jewish literature around the time of Yeshua, uh, there were some communities who said, if you were not circumcised on the eighth day, you're out. You're not part of the covenant anymore. In terms of what it actually means and, and how to best read it, uh, the syntax is a little bit uh, amb uh, ambiguous. Can't really tell if it's starting on the eighth day or you're moving forward. But when you look at the testimony of Scripture, what you see, for example, is Moses' children, Gershom and Eliezer, who were circumcised later on. Or when Israel was out in the wilderness and then before they could enter into the land of Canaan, they had to become circumcised. Right? They weren't circumcised before, uh, at least a generation born into the wilderness. And so this notion that circumcision did seem to be permissible after is a great point of, uh, of contention and debate and I, what I find very interesting. But this is the timing that the Lord gave. Uh, eighth day, either eighth day or eighth day onward, you are to be circumcised. Now, why circumcision? Why? As a father of three boys, it's very hard. On dads, why circumcision? Why have that as the sign? Once again, we're given many options. Some say it's purity laws to make the, the descendants more pure or uh, something of that sort. Some say it's a takeaway from sexual activity or sexual pleasure or something of that sort, uh, which I, I don't know how that makes sense because there's no way uh, someone who's eight days old would know the difference. But anyway, or to acknowledge that God is the one who gives seed, then the descendants and the promises uh, one option that I do like is that uh, in Egypt, circumcision was usually enacted on the priests. And so by Abraham taking this custom, it was anticipating Israel being a kingdom of priests, of Israel being one who would show the God of Israel to others. And we see how important it becomes for their identification 
Um, the fact that if you are Jewish, if you are a descendant of Abraham, you had to be circumcised. You could be circumcised if you're not, but if you are part of that line, you need to be based on the Abrahamic covenant. And eventually what we see, especially with Moses, is that the circumcision becomes a spiritual symbol as well. Moses starts to talk about the circumcision of the heart or that the prophets tell us we need to circumcise our ears. That means we need to hear better. We need to obey more. So it's really a spiritual lesson as well. So this here is the sign of the covenant, circumcision. Now, is circumcision still commanded for today? I remember when I was in class at Trinity Evangelical, we were having a class on Calvin, and this the, the notion came up on how baptism is the new circumcision, right? Uh, the fact that children are now baptized replaces circumcision as it was in the Hebrew Bible. To which I asked, what about Timothy in Acts 16? Why was he circumcised by Paul? To which the professor said, hmm, I don't know. And then the class went on, right? Which is fine, because he was just, he was just telling Calvin's view, right? It wasn't necessarily his own view. But the truth is that you see circumcision continuing on. Unfortunately, it gets a bad reputation from people who kind of do selective reading because they go to Galatians. Now, you have to keep in mind that um, if you read my emails, right? Like if you read my letters and you only read them one way, and you never saw the responses or anything, you may get kind of a misunderstanding of what I'm trying to say, right? What Paul is responding to, to the church in Galatia, is that people were circumcising for salvation. They were circumcising because they thought that it contributed to their salvific life. And so what does Paul say? It means nothing. It's of no value to you when you get circumcised like that. Now, of course, it's of no value if you're dealing with salvation. However, did Paul still circumcise? Yeah, he circumcised Timothy because Timothy's mother was Jewish. And so we see that this covenant still continues on today. The Abrahamic covenant, it's still incumbent upon Jewish boys to be circumcised because it represents God's faithfulness to his people. So in conclusion here, in summary, the Abrahamic covenant, it's threefold. You have the land, you have the seed, and you have the blessing. The land turns into the land covenant, the seed turns into the Davidic covenant, and the blessing goes to the new covenant here. So in all of this, you see that Abraham, he trusted God over many years, and that God would fulfill his promise to him. Now, what are some takeaways from the story of Abraham? Again, to reiterate this, you know, when, when he tells, uh, it's amazing, you know, he, he tells Abraham in Genesis 15, he says, you guys are going to inherit the land. I'm going to give you the seed, except there's going to be about a period of 400 years where you're going to be slaves and you're not going to have it, right? There is no automatic boom, boom fulfillment. What the Lord does is he's also focused on the formation of us. And you see that with Abraham, you know, in, in Genesis 12, he has a promise and then you have a trial, you have the, all the promises turned upside down. Genesis 15, you have the promise, then you have a trial with Ishmael. Genesis 17, you have the sign, then you have a trial with the Akedah. This is how it works when the Lord promises something because he's focused on the formation. And it's going through these trials that are imperative for our growth. These are the things that are going to develop our faith. It's like if you ever heard of the, the man who went to a job interview and the, the employer was, was so impressed with him that automatically he wanted to give him a contract. And he said, okay, for your first year, 
you're going to make 60,000 for your second year, you're going to make 80,000 for your third year, you're going to make 100,000. To which the man replied, wonderful, I'll start working for you in three years. Doesn't work like that. You need to build yourself up. And that's what we see with Abraham as well. These trials, his character, and that's why he's upheld as a pinnacle of faith. So this summarizes the Abrahamic covenant. Here, this is what we have, the land seed and the blessing. And uh, tomorrow, again, we're going to kind of go back in time and we're going to look at the Adamic covenant, the one made with Abraham, and see God's faithfulness there in the midst of judgment. Are there any questions or was anything unclear going through the Abrahamic covenant? Perfect. Okay. All right. Well, let me uh, close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. And thank you, God, that we could understand it, that we could have the guidance of your spirit, Lord, in order to see not only your covenant faithfulness to Abraham, to his children, Lord, but to us as well, Father. I pray, Lord, that we will be able to just kind of enjoy the stories, Lord, be able to see your character through there and be able to apply it to our own lives. Lord, uh, in the midst of also the weather here, God, I pray for safety for everyone leaving this evening, Lord, and that uh, we come, we get home and we're able to enjoy a Shabbat rest, Lord, in the name of Yeshua. Amen.